We're studying through the life of David, and we've come to a point in his life that David is going to get in deep, deep trouble. He's going to get caught red-handed. Do you know where that idea of red-handed, what that means? What's it mean to be caught red-handed? Nobody knows? You got caught with your hand in the cookie jar. That explains it, one illustration for another. <laughs> it came from this idea. There's several different ideas of suggestions where it came from. In 1423, Scottish Parliament had a series of laws that if somebody was caught poaching on somebody else's property, the, re- the way you could tell that they were absolutely guilty was blood on their hands. They were caught red-handed. So if a poacher was caught red-handed, then he could be prosecuted, literally executed. Others have over the years pointed out that they said that in uh, China, I'm sorry, Japan, in Japan that the temple priests, they wanted to secure the funds that were given to them. So what they would do is they'd, they'd take the coins and they would rub them in a sap, gooey-type substance, and then they would rub them in poison ivy. And they could tell whoever stole from the temple, their hands would be red from itching, red-handed. It came in, um, in more recent times. In the 1700s, they talked about how masters who had pistachios, which was a rare, rare type of, uh, of delicacy during that period of time, and very expensive, that what they would do is the masters would, they would put a little bit of a dye that would be on the pistachios. That wasn't going to be harmful, but if the servants took the pistachios when they weren't supposed to, they could tell because they were caught red-handed. Then he had in the 1700s as well, the British would use this term, because of those coats that the red coats wore, they were a heavy woolen coat, they were the best that you would be able to get in the British Isles, but they were produced only at a couple of different factories that would produce them, and in the process, they would dip this wool into a really brilliant red dye, and then they would hang it up, and it would have to hang for several days to totally dry out. And so people wanted those coats. Thieves would get in there and try to take the coats, but if they'd grab the coats before they were dry, they'd be caught red-handed. David is going to experience that now in chapter 12 where he is caught red-handed. For those of you sitting here with us this morning or watching online, you say, well, what did he do? His story is told in chapter 11 where David, who had danced for Jesus in joy, who had been writing psalms, David got into a a terrible situation that he allowed himself to be taken over by his own desires and lust. Remember the story? He's supposed to be in battle, but rather he's at home. He goes up on the roof, and while he's on the roof in the middle of the night, he sees a woman who is bathing down below in this tiered setup of their community, and he asks for her to come and join him up at the palace. He's told by some servant, Lord, she's the wife of one of your loyal soldiers on the battlefield. She's the, you know, she's the daughter-in-law of your most trusted advisor. And David responds, I don't care, bring her here. And when she comes to the palace, he lays with her. She ends up getting pregnant. And as a result, they have to cover up this sin somehow that they got away. So he, re, he sends a message to the front lines and says, Hey, Bathsheba, that's the woman, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, come back to the palace. I need you. I need you to come back. And Uriah's loyal to David. He comes back and he and David have conversation. And David's whole goal here is to get him to go home and to spend time with his wife so as to cover up, cover up that she's gotten pregnant by David. 
And so he encourages Uriah to go home. Uriah won't have anything to do with it. Why should I have pleasures, the comfort of my own bed at home when my soldiers under me are out on the battlefield? And so David, you know, got to get this guy, got to do something. He gets him drunk. He still doesn't go home. So David decides, I'm going to send him back to the front lines. And I'm going to take care of this in another way. When he sends Uriah back in the front lines, he has a note to the general, the commander of, of the troops, Joab. And it says, when you go into battle, put Uriah right at the front lines, at the bottom of the walls of the city you're attacking. And then all of a sudden, call everybody back, and Uriah will surely be killed, and David can cover up the sin. And it all happens. But it's not just Uriah that gets killed. It's several of the soldiers that are with him in his command. And so David hears the news that Uriah is dead. And so they have a mourning time. They have this grieving time for Uriah. I don't know what kind of celebration David did, if David paid for the funeral or whatever. I don't know. But what happens is Uriah is buried. His wife goes through the normal period of mourning. could be a week is typically from that, from what we understand. That she has a period of mourning taking place, and then David sends for her. Maybe he's making it appear like he's going to take care of her and provide for her. But he brings her to the palace, and he adds her to his harem, another one of his wives. And as a result, David and Bathsheba have covered up their sin. Nobody seems to know about it. It's not being not being put out on the public news, CNN, Fox, they're not covering it. Nobody's texting about it. Maybe the servants have a little bit of a keen eye. They've seen some things. But then we come to chapter 12. And in chapter 12, though David thinks he got away with it, we read at the very end of chapter 11, it says, the thing that he had done displeased the Lord. He thinks he's gotten away. People aren't upset. Bathsheba's not upset. Everybody's happy. But the thing displeased the Lord. And what's really interesting is God has a conversation through the prophet with David. And as they have this conversation, we read some of the things that God says to David. You go a little bit further. Now here's where chapter 12 comes in. God is going to react. God is going to respond to David. And he's going he's to reveal what he really thinks about this. Now you look at verse 7 and 8. And what God says to the prophet, he says, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, that is Saul, the former king, his wives under your bosom. I gave you the houses of Israel, Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have, he goes, says, moreover have given unto you even more things. It's as if God is saying to David, how could you do this to me? How could you possibly do this after I picked you? I chose you to be the king. When you were just a teenager, I, made, I appointed you. I anointed you. How could you do this? I've protected you. For 15 years, you were on the lamb running from Saul. You almost got caught. I protected you. I, I created circumstances that your life was spared. How could you do this? When Saul was dead, I promoted you to become the next king. You weren't in the family heritage. You, didn't, you weren't one that, that was in the kingly line. I, I promoted you. It was me that had the people come to you. And then I blessed your, your leadership. For the last five, ten years that you've been king, I have made you successful. You have won every battle that you've been engaged in. I have helped you to get... To, 
personal financial riches. I have helped you to grow in esteem. I have done so much for you. How could you violate my word? How could you go against what I have? How could you stoop so low? By the way, you're asking the same question. A lot of you have said the same thing. How could David do that? God asked him that question. And when, when we come into chapter 12, God says, this is what I think of what you have done. And it's interesting, the words that God uses. He says, wherefore have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? When you sin, and by the way, we all know this, David broke two of the Ten Commandments. Now we know there are 630 some, but two of those that were best known of the Ten Commandments, he broke two. He took his neighbor's wife, he coveted her, and then he committed murder. And God says, how could you despise my word? Then he goes on, he says, by despising my word, you despised me. This is, you, you basically, you put me down. And then he makes another comment that is really interesting. He says, you have given opportunity and occasion for my enemies to blaspheme me. You have done something that others are going to use against God Almighty. Does that ever happen? Do you ever, do you ever falter and those who are watching you say, see, if you're a child of God, how could you do that? There's a writer who's, who's an excellent biography on the life of David. His name is, um, is Philip Keller. And he writes about when he was in the University of Toronto. And he was in a, a class that was dealing with ancient literature. The professor used this story as part of his literature class. He goes on, he says this. He says, I recall vividly the day when I sat in this literature lecture and heard my instructor read from Second Samuel, the account of King David having his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and then murdering her husband. Closing the pages of the Bible with a sharp smack, he glared out through his glasses at us who were the teenage students and growled angrily, if that is the sort of thing God's people do, I don't even want to hear about that kind of a God. It was a vicious indictment that was devastating to me as a young person. That's exactly what God said it's going to happen. People are going to blaspheme my name because of what you did, David. This thing displeased the Lord so much that all of a sudden God's going to take action. God is going to take several steps in dealing with David that are several steps worth our noting. That as we go through the process, how does David respond? How does God respond in this passage? First thing I want you to notice is this. That though David had covered up his sin, David had come under severe, severe, serious conviction. Now in this story, just to make it clear, between chapter 11 and chapter 12, we don't know how much time went by. Some suggest that it was just a short period of time. There's a baby born or at least alive in chapter 12. So it has to be several months are going by. Several months. I, again, we don't know when David had his sin with Bathsheba, how long it was before Uriah is killed. It seems to be everything's moving along pretty quickly. So a minimum of probably we're talking about seven months. Some say it's all the way up to a year that the baby was several months old. I don't know that. Some suggest that the baby dies when it's before it reaches its eighth day because it says seven days that the baby is, is ill. The eighth day is the day that you would give a name to the baby in that culture and the baby's never named. So that's why some would say it's probably a six, seven month period. Somewhere's in there. 
And the whole thought was David having taken Bathsheba, he's covered this up, the baby will be born, and it may be they can claim it was premature by a month or so and just cover it all up. But God is in the move. God is taking action. And when God is moving in David's heart during those six, seven, eight months, David is experiencing tremendous conviction. Go to this passage. Go to Psalm 32. You're still in 2 Samuel 12. Hold your finger there, but go to Psalm 32. David writes this psalm afterwards, but he recalls what it was like during those few months. You see, we think that people who are born again, that they can get away with terrible sin and it doesn't bother them. That's not true biblically. That's just not true. In Psalm 32, David starts off and you can see where he's on the backside of forgiveness. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covering. And he makes that comment in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin uh, unto you and mine iniquity have I not hid. And so he's talking after chapter 12 of Second Samuel. But during that time, what was David experiencing? He says in verse 3, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. What's he saying? During that time period when we were living as on the outside that nobody could see, on the outside I was going through the motions of being a king and being a husband and being a dad and being a military leader. On the inside, I was a singer without a song. I was a leader who had become listless. I was, one, I was a dad who was all of a sudden totally miserable. I, I couldn't sleep at night. The Spirit of God was gnawing at my, at my soul. I was under deep conviction. All the time, it was in the back of my mind. I was just, I, I was just under such severe conviction. But I was so proud I didn't, I didn't confess. I didn't humble myself. And so God is dealing with him. He's under serious conviction throughout this time. And that is going to happen to every one of you who is truly born again. Because this is the experience that, according to the Word of God, we have when we harbor sin. We know we're not perfect. None of us have ever, well, I hope, none of us have ever claimed that we are sinlessly perfect. You would agree that even as a believer, you have failed the Lord at times? Yes? No? Okay. So we all sin. But, and the fact is, we may commit most any type of sin, Christians can do all kinds of things. And if we say that we don't sin, we're deceiving ourselves. We still battle a sin nature. It's called the old man. It's called our flesh. And it's still with us day in and day out. And so when we sin, if we go against the Lord, we can't enjoy living in that sin indefinitely. There is pleasure in sin, but only for a season. Because the Word of God says that because we are born into God's family, we can't, as, we, as I paraphrase it here, we can't continually practice sin. If, if you're an individual that is involved with stealing from your company, you as a believer are going to come under the conviction of the Spirit of God. He's going to bring this up and bring this up and keep on, keep on, keep on. You can't keep on enjoying it without any consequence. Now on the outside, we may think everything is good with you, but on the inside you'll be like David. Your bones are waxing old. Your spirit is feeling like you're being compressed. You're losing the moisture. Your tongue is drying up. And he says that we experience this conviction, righteous lot. 
Lot who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah was under deep conviction while he was doing it. His soul was vexed. David is under deep conviction and what happens is if we fail to repent it's going to move up a notch. God's discipline is going to increase from just internal conviction to external chastisement. We know that because whom the Lord loves he chastens. We know that if we are without some type of outward chastisement living in perpetual sin then we are not God's child. Then we, that we don't belong to God. One of the proofs that you are truly born again, one of the evidences, the vital signs to know that you are born again is you cannot live doing sin perpetually in peace and joy and happiness. You will experience conviction and then if you don't repent you'll experience some form of chastisement. That is an evidence that you are a child of God. If that's not in your life you better check your salvation. You may have made a profession, but you did it without a possession in reality. And so there's a warning here in this text. And my advice to you is simply this. If you have done some sin or sins, and it is becoming a habitual part of your life, God is convicting you, repent now. Don't continue in that lifestyle. Don't continue in, in harboring that, in hiding it. You need to repent. Otherwise, you're going to have God who loves you so deeply, wants you to be right with Him. He's going to move up the form of discipline in your life, of chastisement. So David's experiencing that. Though it looks really good on the outside, he thinks he's gotten away from it. His spirit is telling him, uh-uh. You haven't gotten away. I know what you have done. You have displeased me. You have despised me. So David doesn't repent so God moves up, increases the correction. He sends a prophet. He sends the prophet Nathan. We don't know much about him. He just shows up in the story. He's a prophet known to David. He comes in and by the way, you got to admit, this guy's a bold guy. To come into the king and to speak the way he does to the king who has control of life or death over his subjects. He comes in and he talks to David. He confronts David and he tells basically David, he's going to say, hey David, you have done wrong. And the way he does it is so, so tactful and so wise. He doesn't just walk in and say, David, you bum. Okay, David would have reacted defensively. And so he comes in rather and he says, David, I, I have to ask you about something. You see, David is the judge. He makes decisions over the people in the land. He is the Supreme Court. They can bring cases. Nathan comes in as if he's bringing a case to David. And David's going to initially just going to react like the king would. I'm the judge. I'm hearing the case. I'm going to make a ruling. And so he tells him a story. And the story is very interesting as we read it in 2 Samuel. It starts off and he came in, in verse 1. It says, there are two men in one city. The one was rich. The other is poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except for one little female lamb, which he bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of their own meat. It drank of his own cup. It lay in his bosom. It was unto him as a daughter. Some of you can relate. Some of you have animal pets that they eat. They sleep with you. They eat with you. Okay? If it's a dog, you know, you have to keep it under control. Cat, you can't control. They just do it no matter what. And so here he is. He says, the, the, this animal that he may have purchased. Some of you have done this. Some of you have purchased chickens that you were going to make into a meal later on, but your kids got attached. 
Have you ever had that? And then you present it there, that chicken, and then they say, oh, this was Sammy. And the kids are all over the place. In this case, this guy brings this animal, and it becomes like one of the family to him, just like some of you know. And he says, and there came a traveler unto the rich man. And the rich man spared to take from his own flock and of his own herds to make a meal for the wayfaring man that was come unto him. But instead, the rich man took the poor man's one little ewe lamb, the one, the one that had become like a daughter to him. And he slew it, cooked it for the man that was come to him. Isn't it interesting? Whoa. Here you have the situation. Now, let me point out what happens here uh, before we go any further. Though David had covered his sin, he was under deep conviction. It had come internally, now comes externally with the story. David is confronted with his sin. And David's response is hypocritical indignation. David, what does he do? He hears what happened, and David just, and maybe he was sitting down, I don't know, but he, he just stand, you know, gets up or whatever, and he's mad. The passage says David's anger was great, and he interrupts Nathan's story. And he's, he just, he just, he's making judgment. He's the king. He's the one. He's the ruler. And he gets the impression that David jumps out of the throne, great, greatly angered, kindled against the man. And he says, as the Lord lives, that rich man that hath done this thing, he's going to die. Whoa. David, that's a, quite, quite a pronouncement. Now, can you understand why David gets upset? What was David's background? He was a shepherd. Did he have a close attachment to the sheep when he was growing up? Yeah, read through the Psalms. Read Psalm 23, my friend. Okay, David understands that. Has David ever experienced in the past where somebody wealthy had abused him? Saul. Saul went after David. David David was on the lamb. He was on the run. He had to help protect his own parents from King Saul. He knows what it's like for the rich to take advantage of the poor people. In fact, his 500 who gathered around him, they were all being overtaxed, overpenalized by Saul. So he understands this class division that sometimes he's been on the other end of it. And so David responds. He knows how people in power can abuse their power at, some, at times and take advantage of people who can't defend themselves. And David's all for the little guy. David's going to defend the little guy here in the story. It sounds, by the way, very heroic. And it's very, it's very justice-oriented. And so David is, David's very upset because the rich man had taken, even though he had lots for himself, had taken the one thing that that poor man had. Even though the rich man had it. And plenty of it. Plenty to spare. And David's just, he just finds this to be an absolute violation of everything especially as the story revealed how close they were to the lamb. And David understood that. He's been there. He grew up with those animals. He knows how attached they can be. I'm sure, like any other shepherd, <coughs> he gave them names when he was out in the, taking care of the flock. So he knows the shepherd-sheep attachment, how it hurts the family when all of a sudden <coughs> it's torn apart. And David jumps up and he says very, very simply, the guy's got to die. By the way, where in the Old Testament does it command somebody to die for stealing? You're not answering. Which means one of two things. You don't have a clue, or you know that the Bible never says it does. Which I'm going to assume, being as smart as you are, you, it's number two. 
you know that Scripture never demanded the death penalty for stealing. If you stole somebody's animals, you had to return the animal and four more. You return fourfold for stealing, stealing a sheep in particular, okay, or any other cattle. But never, never the death penalty for stealing. So that gives you an idea. David was really ticked. David's really upset at the guy. Because notice the next verse, he says he's got to return fourfold. So David is making a judgment and a pronouncement. What the irony here is David's judgment is basically who's he judging? Himself. See, you know. You know, but David doesn't get it. And so David, David doesn't get the story. He's just upset. And finally Nathan just pipes up. He says, it's you. It's you. I picture this in my mind. David's up there, righteous indignation, standing before his throne, and all of a sudden the prophet points at him and says, you're the guy. And David's been under conviction. He knows that he's been doing wrong. Maybe last night was another sleepless night. And David just falls back onto the throne. And all the gusto is gone. The air is out of his balloon of indignation. But you know what's very interesting? It's very interesting that David didn't get it. Why not? Why didn't he get that he was the one? Why, why was it such a hard... Because I, I suggest to you, I propose this, that when you and I harbor unconfessed sin, it's very easy to go down the path of self-deception. When we harbor a sin, we self-deceive ourselves. We keep on saying, I'm okay. It's all right. No problem. It's not that bad. You know, and I'm doing other things for God. And we go down that path and we're, we lose sensibilities to the reality that God is displeased with us. That God is upset with us. And we don't get it. The message is from the Word of God. We kind of just, it, while we're sitting there and we're hearing something, you know, all of a sudden we're pricked in our conf- conscience, but we cover it up. We play it off and we don't hear the rest of the Word of God. And what's interesting is how Nathan was so pointed with David. Now, you're automatically thinking, thou art the man. Uh Uh-uh, before that. Do you know how he described the little ewe lamb? He says, the lamb to that man was like a what? Daughter. You know what the word is in the Hebrew? Bath. The first part of whose name? Bathsheba. And in the story, as you, as you go a little bit deeper in the story, not only does he say, this daughter, this lamb was like a bath. He, he makes another comment. He used, says that that lamb laid in the lamb's bosom. It's the exact same word in chapter 4 when he lay with her. And by the way, the guy who comes traveling, it says in, in this story, it's the same word used of David walking on his roof. So here you have all these little parallels in the Hebrew, in the language, that, that the prophet brings up. And there are little nuances to just, David, you're the guy, you're the guy, you're the guy. But David has convinced himself, I'm right, he's wrong. Can I suggest something else to you? When we are harboring sin, it is easier for us to see other people's sin than our own. Right? Okay, the, the, the fact is, we quickly condemn other people and why we're hiding our own guilts. What passage does this remind you of, the warning passage? 
those of you, be careful when you judge others. Because oftentimes you have a, a beam in your own eye and you're all concerned about the what? The splinter in somebody else's eye. Who told us that? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ warns that there is easily, it's easy to be, have hypocritical indignation towards others. That we get upset about something somebody else has done. And yet, we're guilty of a far greater... By the way, you know the only difference between that, that little splinter and the beam of wood? The only difference is size. It's the same material, right? And so he's, he's got this, this challenge going, and David doesn't get it. Why? Because he's harboring. But that scares me. That scares me. That tells me that you and I can become dull, insensitive, callous to the Spirit of God if we insist on hiding sin and not confessing it. Oh, there is serious danger in not living a pure life. You can all of a sudden become so blind. It, oh, it happens all the time. We talk about how society is so greedy and we're jealous of our neighbors. It's so easy for us to all of a sudden say, oh, the politicians are so deceitful and dishonest. But you lie on your time card. You lie about what you've done at work or on your homework. We get so upset about how this society, the, the moral standards are dropping in our society and how it is so wicked that there's all kinds of alternative lifestyles being accepted. And yet, believers watch indecent photos, videos. We can get mad about how this whole nation is just turning away from God. But you haven't been in the Bible since last Sunday. You haven't had time of personal prayer. You haven't taken time for devotions. But you're condemning society for getting away from God? That's an unsaved world. You're a believer. You know, when we get so upset about how there's so much divorce going on, but you're not even working at your marriage. We can get upset about that whole idea about the educational system. It's just getting worse and worse and worse. And we know that there's that, those battles. But you refuse. You refuse to change your habits, your words, the way you conduct your life in your home. See, it's easy to become a hypocrite. It's easy to do. We, we all fall into this at times. We're all guilty of, of, of this type of stuff. And we need to remember that when God convicts, we need to respond with repentance quickly. That brings us to another thought. Brings us to this idea, though David was horribly guilty of his sin, and it was a horrible situation. It was, I mean, you, several of you keep saying to me, how can David be called the man after God's own heart? Look what he did with Bathsheba. Look what he did to Uriah. Yeah, that poses questions. We all know that it, what he did was horrible. It was awful. It was despicable. Yet here is a reality. God forgives him. God forgives him. Oh, and thank God that there is mercy. Amen. Thank God that when we come to Jesus, he forgives us. Here's what I mean by that. David had become dull, but now when he smacked right in the face, he, and he says, you are the man, David's response is two words in this text. It's only two words. David is sat back, he's just looking, the prophet is going to be talking to him, and then David makes this comment in verse 13 in the midst of Nathan's comments. I have sinned against the Lord. That's all David says. 
David doesn't say, but it's Bathsheba's fault. It wouldn't have happened if she wasn't on the roof. It wouldn't have happened if, you know, if, if I could have slept that night, but I had indigestion. You know, it was the cook's fault. You know, uh, it, it, I know, but you know, I'm the king, and the king has needs, and, and you know, I have... Nor did he water it down. He didn't start doing what we do. Well, it really wasn't that bad. Others have done it. You know, I, I know my friends have done this type of thing, my friend, other kings. He, he doesn't start doing this. Well, if God, if you do this, I'll do this. If you, if you take away all this conviction, then I'll. doesn't do it. He just, he simply responds and says, I have sinned against you. By the way, that's confession. Confession is simply to say the same thing as somebody else. To say the same thing that God says. To say, my gossip is sin. My lying is sin. My disobedience to my parents is sin. My, my unrighteous anger and having a fit, it is sin. It's not due to your hair color or your bloodline. It's because you chose to sin. My, my lying, it is sin. It is very simply agreeing with God that what he has done is wrong. And David, David agrees. And by the way, by agreeing that he has sinned as God has said, David is guilty of a crime, not just stealing, but what crime warrants death? He murdered Uriah plus the others that got killed with him by saying... I am guilty. I deserve death. Most criminals, when they're caught, do they say, I deserve this death sentence? David's doing it. This is where David doesn't argue with God. He just says, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. He owns it. And he's very, he's already, he's already made pronouncement. The punishment deserves to be death and, re, and fourfold consequence. David's already said that. He's the judge. He already brought that upon himself. He's already said, I'm guilty. I own it. This is what I deserve. He's not going to rewrite. And as a result of that attitude, of this type of confession and repentance, the prophet immediately says, he says, makes a comment, the Lord also has put away your sins. You will not die. Whoa! What a huge statement from God. Did David deserve to die? Yes. Did David deserve to be forgiven? Did he deserve to be forgiven? No. 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 It's only by grace. But he's not told you have to do some penance. Now some of us grew up in churches where to get forgiveness you had to do all kinds of things. You had to confess and then you had to do all kinds of works and actions or prayers or money and then, then, the, confession, uh, then the forgiveness would come later. I'm so glad we don't have that. I'm so glad I don't have to listen to your sins and then give you some type of penance. Aren't you glad you don't have to tell me? Say yes, amen. You don't want to tell me. I don't want to hear. 
you don't want to, you don't want me to hear. Yeah. You don't want me to hear. You did what? Okay. That's so nice. It's so great that God says, just come to me. If you confess your sins, I am faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you. Without all of this other stuff, just simple confession. Hey, there's a guy that when Pope John Paul died, this guy thought, you know what? Someday, someday coming, whenever, the next pope might use the name Benedict. So he bought the domain for, you can see it up there, Benedict XVI. This was before the next pope was elected and chose that name. And so he got that domain thinking, if the next pope, you know, I got it. They're going to have to come to me. And then he was really excited, and the fellow's name I have up here, Roger Cadenhead, he, he got excited when he saw on eBay that for the, uh, the email account that somebody had done the same thing, set up an email account with Benedict's name to it. That person got $16,000 for that, that email account. So this fella, Cadenhead, he's pretty excited that he got this domain he can sell it to the Pope who just chose Benedict XVI. Sure enough, a couple weeks later, he got a knock on his door. People that came to the States all the way from the Vatican just to get the domain rights from him. They said, whatever monies you want. He's a good Catholic. You know, he wanted to help the church out. So he said, I'll give it to you for no money at all. But... I want you to absolve all of my sins for the third week of March 1987. Doesn't that get you to think? Doesn't that get your curiosity up? I just said I don't want to hear about your sins, but don't you want to know what happened in this guy's life? And so they granted him a a papal statement that says all your sins were forgiven during that week. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing that they they think they can do that. Yeah. You and I, we have such a great God, he provides immediate forgiveness when we simply call upon him. When we say, Lord, save my soul. I am a sinner. I deserve to die. In hell forever. Oh God. For, oh. Why would God do that? This is what God told Moses. The day that Moses said, can I see you? And God said, no, you can't see me face to face, but I'll pass by. And the Lord then said, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression. That's the God of the Old Testament. That's the God of the New Testament. A God who would forgive people who don't deserve it. Now, some of you are still wondering, why did God forgive David for such a heinous crime? I'm going to respond with a question. Why did God forgive you? Why did God forgive me? What did we do to deserve it? Nothing. Not a thing. In fact, let me take you to the Bible where some people suffered serious consequences for simply taking communion wrong. If they had a wrong attitude at communion, some were suffering death. When Ananias and Sapphira came to church and pretended that they were really sold out to God and so faithful to God, they were lying. 
And what happened to them? They're dead. So don't tell me that, that David really did something big, therefore he deserved death. The wages of one sin is death. It's very simple. The only reason we don't experience death is be to the praise and the glory of his grace where he has made us accepted in Jesus Christ in whom we have redemption not through baptism, not through a papal papal edict, not through going to church, but through his blood we have the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Thank God we can be forgiven when we repent. Thank God that he does that for us. But let me add this. Okay, number four. Though David was totally forgiven, he still suffered serious consequences. Forgiveness from God doesn't mean all is totally forgotten forever and ever. The sin is, but there still could be consequences. You say, why is that? When I've asked for forgiveness, how come God doesn't take away? Oh, oh God, please forgive me for stealing from my employer. I'll give the $500,000 back. And everybody's going to be happy. Then why did the police still come and arrest me? And why do I still have to go through a court case? Because there's consequences. There's consequences. Now, we know this because Scripture says, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he... He's going to reap, okay? Even if my sins are forgiven, if, if all of a sudden I, I did something horrible, horrible, horrible to you folk, I did something horrible, horrible, horrible to one of your kids, okay? And I come and say, please forgive me. Please forgive me. And you say, I forgive you, but you're not going to have me, have me babysit again. Right? If you have a brain, you won't. Okay? If, if all of a sudden, if you stole my money, oh, let's, let's make it for here. If, um, if whoever we elect, if they are here and they're serving our church and they, they were the treasurer and they wrote themselves a check and totally took all of our church money, may we for, still forgive that person? Are we still going to keep them as treasurer? No. No. There's consequences. Because trust is broken. And he says we reap the same type of what we sow, more than we sow, and usually in a different season. So in David's case, David's going to get forgiveness. And they're going to say, yes, you're forgiven of your sin. However, there are consequences. There are things that you have set in motion, David, by your choice that aren't going to be turned around. Here they are. Verse 9. Wherefore you despise the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight. You killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You took his wife to be your wife. You slayed him with the sword of the children of the Ammon. That is, you indirectly had him killed by those other soldiers. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you despised me and you took the wife of Uriah to be your wife. He says, the sword will never depart. What's that mean? That means for David, you're going to have in your, in your family violence take place. We're going to learn in the next few chapters that David fourfold suffers loss of four of his sons. Four sons will die. 
We're going to read in the next few chapters that one of his sons, Amnon, rapes one of David's daughters, his half-sister. There's violence. And then because of that, that Tamar's brother, full brother, Absalom, will take revenge and kill Amnon. Violence in the home. David, you're reaping what you sowed. And so David's just... And then it goes a little bit further. Not only is that going to happen, but he says in the next verse, I will raise up evil against you in your own home. I will take your wives before your eyes, give them unto somebody close to you, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. What you did secretly, I will do this before all of Israel and before the sun. And so God predicts that somebody in your household is going to rise up against you. We're going to read Absalom, his one son, will revolt against David. And he will lead the nation in a civil war against David. And to show that he has replaced his dad, he will go to Jerusalem and he is advised by Bathsheba's father-in-law, go into David's harem and take those women. Because in that society, that would show that he's got more authority than David did. And so it says in the text that on the roof in front of all of the Israel, he goes into the privacy of the tent and he lays with David's harem. Just like this passage predicts. It's horrible what happens. That David experiences this. That David has to go through this. That, that it happens. But you're reaping what you sow. Now, God adds one more thing. God says to David, you won't die but the baby that is born through this illicit relationship, it will die. I don't know about you. That causes me a conundrum in trying to understand this. Why would God take the life of an innocent child because of what dad has done? That's, that, that just creates several questions in my mind. The best way that I can answer it in my mind is this. Number one is the thought, our God is sovereign over all life. All life belongs to him. And as God chooses, God doesn't always explain himself. Secret things belong to the Lord. He doesn't give us all of the information. Despite not having the information, despite the questions, I know this, God was not the guilty party. It wasn't God who had done wrong. It was David. And God, what he does, is never wrong. Because the Lord is righteous in all of his works. That's being told to the nation of Israel when they have rebelled for generations and now they're in captivity. And it's some, including generations and children who didn't rebel in generations past. They weren't around. I know this as well. The child, this is my firm my firm personal belief, the child enters into heaven, into paradise. I know from study of scripture that if this child had lived, this child was going to face a very difficult future. Because in those societies back then, they always blamed some, some problem on successive generations, previous generations. This child was going to be a constant reminder of, to David 
uh-oh, what I did. David's already heard about violence in the household. Can you imagine what the siblings would have thought or said about this child? You say it never happens? Do kids get held responsible for things the parents had done? Children born out of wedlock, has society ever castigated those children in generations? This child, by grace, was even spared from a life that could have been a terrible, a terrible challenge for this child. Having his, his beginning brought up time and time again. But more importantly, every text of scriptures some way or somehow is pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Giving something about him. Telling us about him. I look at this text and here is an innocent child of David who dies for his, the sin of his father. Has that ever happened for you and me? That somebody totally innocent has died for our sins? Jesus Christ never sinned, never did anything wrong, but he dies on the cross because of us, the wages of our sin. He died on the cross for your lying, my cheating, my anger, your cursing, your cussing. Jesus Christ willingly gave his life and suffered what we would call the separation from the Father, the punishment of hell, for us. Because we are guilty. We deserve the penalty of death. But God in His graciousness said that some way, somehow, either a death has to take place or I will take a substitute. And so Jesus Christ was the substitute on our behalf. And just as David's innocent son died for David's sin, so too Jesus Christ, God's son, died for our sins. And I don't hear any of us complaining about that one. So God is just. God is right. And God showed his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ did what? He died for us. All we need to do is come to him, like David did. Confess with our mouth that we need this Savior who loved us, who died in our step, that he is the one that, that can give us. Now, some of you are still thinking, but how can you say David was a man after God's own heart? Can I, can I just take another minute here and remind you what happens in the rest of the text? Nathan leaves. David then immediately hears about, it happens right away, the child gets sick. You read the next few verses. David, when the child is sick, David goes into prayer and fasting, doesn't eat. Seven days go by, and David won't eat. The servants come and they say, what do we do for you, David? And David is praying, he's pleading. Maybe, maybe God will change his mind. But then what happens? Okay, we know David's pleading. What happens then? on the seventh day. The baby dies. The baby dies. When the baby dies, what does David do? David gets up, bring, he cleans up, brings some food, and the servants go, this makes no sense. Why were you so upset? And he says, because maybe, just maybe God would have 
changed his mind and spared the child's life. I have left something out. Immediately, there's something else that he did. Before he got up and did all those things, it says this, verse 20, David arose from the earth, washed, anointed himself, changed his apparel. There's a phrase. He came into the house of the Lord and... I remember seeing a case where a child was corrected. child was a preschooler, corrected by the parent. And as the parent was properly correcting the child, the child just yelled, I hate you! I hate you! Man, my days. I thought to myself, if one of my kids did that, I'd throw him out of the car. Okay. <laughs> David, David is suffering consequences that he deserved. And David doesn't, I hate you! I hate you! This isn't fair! He accepts the consequences. He worships God. He, in his response, turns and gives praise to God. Even though it hurts deeply, he is praising God. Why? It could hurt a whole lot more. It could be a whole lot worse. Here is a man after God's own heart. He accepts what God gives him. Here he is as a man that says the most important thing in my life, once again, is going to be fellowship with God. That's why he's a man after God's own heart. He responds the right way, even when he's corrected. Do you? Do you? So what do I do with all this? Here's my applications. One, if you have never come to the point where you have said, I am a sinner, I deserve to go to hell, which you do, then what you need to do is call upon Christ to be your Savior. We sang about it a few moments ago. His mercy is more. What does he say in the book of Romans? Where sin has abounded, grace abounds more. Thank God. If you're dabbling with sinful temptations, you're a believer. You've called upon Christ, but you're dabbling with sinful temptations. Take the lesson from David's story. Stop. Stop dabbling. You're playing with fire. This thing is only going to get worse. Sin will multiply. You could have have serious consequences beyond conviction or even beyond when you're forgiven. Return to the Lord now. If you have experienced such forgiveness by asking him to be your savior, in your Christian life you have fallen flat and you had to come back like David did and Peter did and others have done. Then what should you do? You should do what David did at the end of this chapter. You should worship and praise him. You should give him glory. And I'm going to ask you to do that with me right now. To sing a song of praise and glory to God when we think about his forgiveness. And while we sing, if you're here this morning and you are not sure you are on your way to heaven, while we sing this song, our staff is going to that door right there. You could go over there and ask him, can somebody show me how I can be sure I'm going to heaven? They'll gladly do that. They'll show that to you. It'll take a few minutes. Then you pray what's called the sinner's prayer. Otherwise, as you're seated, just worship with me.
for one minute before we run out. Longhorns will still hold your seat, okay? We'll be okay. Sing about His amazing grace.